Well, our text for today is from Nehemiah chapter 12, which we heard a few moments ago. We're also going to be looking mostly at Nehemiah chapter 13. That's the very last book, or rather the last chapter in the book of Nehemiah. I'm going to be showing a lot of those verses up on the screens, but as always, if you'd like to follow along with the Pew Bible, you can find the text on page 409, page 409, and as we prepare our hearts for worship, we do so in prayer. Oh, dearest Jesus, we come to you in prayer, understanding that we live in uncertain times with lots of instability. So we thank you for the certainty and the solid foundation of your word. And we pray that you would write its eternal truth upon our hearts today. Please be with the one who teaches and proclaims your word today and with all of us who are learning and growing in your grace. For we do pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. I want you to imagine that you go home today and after the church picnic sometime, you turn on your television and you turn on whatever your particular favorite cable news channel happens to be. And as you're watching the news, there is a news report that comes on. It's breaking news, which says this, pastor on rampage. Local pastor curses his church, beats up his members, and pulls their hair. Now, some of you are looking at me like this. If you were to see a news report like this, breaking news, of a man of God, a pastor of God's people acting in this way, of course it would be horrifying and devastating and deeply troubling. And this is exactly how the book of Nehemiah and the story of Nehemiah actually ends. God's people, after all this joy and the song of the saints and the joyful celebration in the temple, yet God's people continued in all sorts of different ways, continued to be unfaithful and to turn away from God. And Nehemiah finally broke. He went on a rampage. And we see this in Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 25, where Nehemiah himself writes this about his actions. He says, I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And oh, I wish this was not in God's word, but we can't duck this or try to pretend like it's not here. We have to try to understand this. What is happening here? Why is Nehemiah acting in this way? Because things started off Pretty wonderful. Again, if you remember the story, 
586 B.C., the Babylonian Empire invades, takes over Jerusalem, destroys the walls, destroys the temple. God's people are taken away into captivity, thousands of them into Babylon. They're there for 70 years. But then after that 70 years, God is faithful to his promises. One day they will return. And through Cyrus the Great, who was the emperor of the Persian Empire, the Persian Empire destroys the Babylonian Empire, and God works in Cyrus's heart to issue a decree saying that his people are set free from exile and many of them stay in Babylon but many of them do return to Jerusalem and they're led that first wave is led by a man named Zerubbabel we heard about him earlier in the summer and Zerubbabel is the one who worked with God's people in Jerusalem to rebuild the temple And although the temple was not as big as it once was or as grand as it once was, and although the very presence, the, the, the visible manifestation of the glory of God was not there like it once was, a little bit of a downer, and yet still the temple is rebuilt in Jerusalem. And then after that, there was a man named Ezra. And if you were here this summer, you maybe heard about Ezra. And Ezra wasn't so much about rebuilding the walls and using stone, but Ezra was rebuilding God's people. It was a spiritual renewal. And Ezra was a scribe, and he brought the word of God back to God's people, the Hebrew scriptures, and he's taught them the law, and he showed them all of the promises of the Messiah, the coming Christ, and it was wonderful, people turning back from God. So it was a little bit of a downer there too because the people of God started to turn away from him, and yet we rejoice because Nehemiah brought the word of God back to his people. But then there was a third man. Of course, that was Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, when he heard that the walls around Jerusalem had not yet been rebuilt, his heart was broken for God's people, for the mission and the purposes of God. And so Nehemiah traveled all the way to Jerusalem with a group of men and with supplies from Artaxerxes, who was the Persian emperor at the time. And he rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem, the walls of the city. And we've been hearing about that over the last several weeks. And last week, there was this great covenant renewal where the people confessed their sin to God and God forgave them and renewed the covenant and his promises with them. And then there's this great celebration that we just heard about today in Nehemiah chapter 12 where all along the walls of the city there's these two big choirs of God's people singing and rejoicing. Ezra leads a choir southward along the walls of the city. Nehemiah leads another choir procession northward around the walls of the city so that the entire city of Jerusalem is surrounded by God's people praising him and celebrating, giving him thanks and glorifying him. And then those two great choirs converge together at the main gate of the city they make their way into the city of Jerusalem singing and rejoicing and they make their way into the temple and all of God's people are there and they are celebrating and rejoicing. This is what we see described in chapter 12, verse 43, where it says they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. And wow, that's the way to end a story. What a wonderful, beautiful conclusion. Holy Spirit, why didn't you end the story there? All of God's people in the temple and they're praising him and thanking him and they're rejoicing and the story of the Old Testament ends there. 
And then all they have to do is wait those 400 years for Jesus to come into the world. Because you see this unsettling ending to Nehemiah. Nehemiah, it's not just the ending of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is the last of the historical books of the Old Testament. This isn't just how Nehemiah ends. This is how the Old Testament ends with uncertainty, instability, and a mess. A lot of different ways that God's people were turning away from him. See, my whole plan was to stop here, people celebrating, rejoicing in the temple, but then I read on into the final chapter, chapter 13, I was like, oh, I guess I better talk about that. We have to understand it. First of all, one of the things that was happening here in chapter 13 is that the priests, the Levites, were not receiving their food. They, they worked in the temple, and so they were to receive food for their services. They weren't receiving food, and so they left the temple. This is what it says in verse 10. It says, Nehemiah writing, says, I found out that the portions, that's the food for the Levites, the priests, had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. The temple is empty. The priests are gone. And the worship life of God's people is now threatened. But then secondly, not only is the worship life of the people threatened, the priests have gone, but the word of God and the law of God is threatened because God's people have started to not honor the Sabbath day. It describes this in verse 15. Verse 15 says, In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day was a gift that God had given to his people, a day where they were to rest and to literally rest from their labors as a way of remembering they were saved by God's grace and his steadfast love, but now they're becoming like the people around them. They're not honoring the Sabbath day. The worship life of the people is threatened. The word and the law of God is threatened, but that's not the worst thing that took place. The very mission of God and God's plan of salvation is threatened. Because God's people start to intermingle and intermarry with the pagan people around them, which is the exact reason why God had allowed them to go into exile for those 70 years in the first place. And here they are doing it all over again. And this is when Nehemiah really loses it. We see this in verse 23 and following, where he says, In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Those are the pagan peoples. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And so this is when it says, he says, I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair and I made them take an oath in the name of God. You see, Nehemiah, calm down. Why is Nehemiah, and by the way, God is not sanctioning this behavior on Nehemiah's part. This is how Nehemiah, as a human being, a sinful human being, is reacting, but he's, he's afraid and he's lashing out. Why is Nehemiah so upset? Well, look, they're intermingling and marrying. The people of God are becoming fragmented and diffused. 
And what does it say about that next generation, the children? It says half of their children could not even speak the language of Judah. That means half of their children, that next generation of God's people, couldn't speak Hebrew. And if they can't speak Hebrew, they can't read Hebrew. And if they can't read Hebrew, Hebrew, they can't read what? The Word of God. The Hebrew Scriptures. And so now we have a whole generation of God's people who are not able to even read the word of God. They don't know of his law. They don't know of his covenants. They won't know of his promises of the Messiah and God's entire mission and his plan of salvation is now threatened. And this is why Nehemiah reacts in this way. And this is how the book of Nehemiah ends. And as I said, Nehemiah is the last of the historical books of the Old Testament. This is how the story of the Old Testament ends with uncertainty, instability, and it's a mess. And it's 400 years before the New Testament. Now, what about us today? What about you as an individual Christian, but all of us together as God's church today? How are we doing today? As we've been talking about in this series, there is, at least in the Western church, unimaginable and growing pressure to conform and to change what we believe in our biblical worldview and to even change what the Word of God says we find this pressure from all sorts of forces and institutions in our culture, again, at least in the West. It's in government institutions, educational institutions, in the media and entertainment institutions, now in corporate institutions as well, the pressure to change and conform, to change God's word. And the pressure is you know, bad enough for me, but where the pressure really lies is upon our students and our children and our grandchildren and the next generation. This is something we don't talk about a lot, but there was a report, there were some statistics that came out of what we call the Council of Presidents of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Our, our denomination is made up of different geographical districts, and each of those districts has a pastor who's the president of the district. It's kind of like bishops, except we don't use the term bishop. So it's like all the Lutheran bishops got together, the Council of Presidents got together several years ago now, and this was the startling statistic that came out. Their finding was this, that over half, over one half of the current congregations in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod has less than 20 years left. Over half of the congregations in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod have 20 more Christmases, 20 Easter's left. What is the church going to be for our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren? And not only the external pressure, but the internal problems that we can have and division within the church. And look, I don't know what's going on with COVID and this variant and that variant, and we are living in unstable and scary times. 
And if there is a mask mandate that comes down again, I will tell you, there is gonna be at least one half of this congregation who says, Pastor, no way, we're vaccinated, we've done it, we've had enough, we need to see each other's faces, we need to sing, we're not doing that again, no way, no how. That's one half the congregation. And then the other half of the congregation would say, Pastor, we've gotta comply, this is dangerous, we've gotta wear our mask to protect those. And the, my fear is, is that there is a great possibility for division even within this congregation. So don't do that. <laughs> Love one another. Try to understand each other's views. But we, just like the end of Nehemiah, just like the end of the Old Testament period, live in unstable, unsteady, uncertain times. So, how then should we live? What should we do? Where can we turn? How can we sing the songs of the saints and sing, sing, sing and rejoice and have joy and have peace about all this? Well, the very last thing that Nehemiah writes this is like his personal journal that he's writing that God saw fit to bring into the canon of sacred scripture. And the very last thing, the very last words is a prayer. And in Nehemiah's simple prayer, there is much we can learn about God. Instead of just gazing at our own navels and turning inward, the most important thing we can do is remind ourselves who God is. This is what Nehemiah is doing. The very last verse of the Bible, this sentence where he says, remember me, oh my God, for good. Remember me, oh my God, for good. This is the last of the historical writings. We could almost say this is the last prayer written down of the New Testament period before 400 years before the New Testament. Remember me, oh my God, for good. There is much we can learn here about God. Let's look at these three sections of this prayer. First of all, remember me. The Hebrew word here is zakar. And we see that in Hebrew names like Zachariah. Zachariah. Zakar means to remember. And in this context, it's also used in this way. Remember me, oh my God, for good. Remember me. The, the meaning here is use me, work through me. God, you use me. You remember me. God, you work through me. Even my mistakes, like all that hair I pulled out or my anger, but my prayers and my efforts, use me, work through me. And the implication here is, God, you're the one who's in control. God, you are on the throne. There is a God, and you are not him. And yet we like to play the role of God so often in our lives. Anytime we worry, we're stressed out, we're concerned about these things, we are putting ourselves on the throne. You know, during the time of the Reformation, boy, that was a, a tumultuous time in the church and the work of reclaiming the gospel. And Martin Luther had a right-hand man, a fellow theologian, his name was Philip Melanchthon. And Philip Melanchthon was an incessant worrier. He had this uh, sort of catastrophic thinking. Philip Melanchthon and I, I think, share a brain. I am very akin. I, I know all about catastrophic thinking and worrying, worrying, worrying. This is part of my nature. But 
Philip Melanchthon was a swearer, and so Luther would turn to Philip Melanchthon, and he wrote this in letters as well, in those moments of his worry, and he said this, Philip, let Philip cease ruling the world. Let Philip cease ruling the world. Let Scott cease trying to rule the world. God is on the throne. We are not. You think God's worried about any of this? In fact, post this side of the cross and this side of the empty tomb, we know it's Jesus Christ who is on the throne. You think Jesus is wringing his hands? Oh, what's going to happen? You think he's nervous and worried? No. Because the first thing we see, he remember me, use me, work through me, O oh, sovereign Lord, that God is infinitely powerful. He is the one who is powerful, first of all. But then secondly, not only is he powerful, but he is personal. Again, look at what it says. Remember me, O oh my God. This is the language of relationship. This isn't just an abstract God or a deistic God who wound up the clock and got things going and isn't concerned. No, this is a God who's intimately concerned with the affairs of humanity, who gets his hands dirty. Again, this side of the cross in the empty tomb, Jesus Christ, it's a God who comes down into to be, even be one of us and is a God who knows you and wants you to know him. He has not been silent. He has spoken. He has revealed himself to you. It's a personal God and a God who is always for you and not against you. He's infinitely powerful. He is personal. And then finally, he is purposeful. There is a telos, there is an end, there is a goal, there is a mission, there is a plan, there is a point, there is a purpose. Remember me, oh my God, for good. What is this word good? We see it in the Bible in various places. In the New Testament, Romans chapter 8, verse 28, is one of the most beloved verses in all of the Bible. Remember those words where St. Paul says that God works in all things for the good of those who love him. He works in all things, your best day and your worst day. He works for good. Now, what's the good? A new car, a new house, a new job? Is it, is it earthly? What's the good? The Hebrew word here, remember me, oh my God, for good, the Hebrew word is tov. Tov. We see that word in other places in the Hebrew Scriptures. Of course, we see it in the very first book of the Bible, the very first chapter. God created the heavens and the earth. God created light, and God saw that the light was good. God saw that the light was tov. He created the waters and the dry land, and God saw that it was good. He created the plants and the vegetation, and God saw that it was good. He created the stars and the moon and the sun, and God saw that it was good. He created the fish and the birds and the animals, and God saw that it was good. It was tov. And then by the very end of it, verse 31 of Genesis chapter 1, God looks at all that he has made, and he says this, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. It was tov ma'od if you want to learn a Hebrew phrase. Tov ma'od. Very good. Now what is tov? What is this good? In this moment of creation, it is 
all things in absolute perfect harmony. It is the song of creation. It is another Hebrew word, shalom, a deep and abiding peace and unity and wholeness in all things. It is all things being in perfect alignment for the purposes by which it was created by God. It is the glory and the beauty of God here on earth. It is our hearts being absolutely filled and overflowing with his beauty and presence. It is what we were made for and it's what you were longing for. It's the reason why you're miserable so much of your life because we don't have this tove, this good, the way the world was made. And so when Jeremiah says, or rather Nehemiah, says, remember me, O my God, for good for this tove, this is what he has in mind. God's mission, God's purpose. He is a God who is powerful, who is personal, and who is purposeful. And he will not, indeed cannot, allow his plan and his mission and his purposes to bring this tove, this goodness, this healing back to this world. It cannot be stopped. It is unstoppable. Again, the mission of Christ isn't simply for us to escape this world when we die. It's not simply about escaping. Christ's ultimate mission is about transforming this broken world with his very presence. And at the very end of the Old Testament, the very end of Nehemiah, it is unstable, it is unsteady, it is uncertain, it is a mess. And yet God answered Nehemiah's prayer and held together a faithful remnant of his people for 400 years until finally, and this is something Nehemiah could have never possibly have imagined, his prayer ultimately was answered in this way you could have never have dreamed. There was a young Jewish girl named Mary who gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And in Jesus Christ, we see the greater and the truer Nehemiah. Nehemiah is pointing us to Jesus, but Nehemiah clearly, all that hair pulling, he, he, is, uh, he is just like we are. He is a broken, sinful human being. Nehemiah is pointing us to the truer and greater Nehemiah in Jesus Christ. Nehemiah, he saw the unfaithfulness of God's people, and he was so distraught and heartbroken that he beat some of them and cursed them. But in Jesus Christ, it was God himself who who saw the unfaithfulness of his people and he was so heartbroken that he allowed himself to be beaten. He took the curse on himself. The curse of sin, yours and mine. So that we might know and so that the mission might be accomplished and all of our sorrows, as Jesus promised, will be turned into joy one last thing who was Nehemiah who was he was he a pastor nope was he a priest nope was he a scribe nope was he a prophet no 
Who was Nehemiah? The text tells us he was a cupbearer to the king. It means he was an administrator. He was a manager of people. He was a businessman. He was a layperson. Nehemiah is you. And just as God worked through Nehemiah in his good days and his bad days, and as God used the prayer of Nehemiah, so God is using all of us, God's people. How is God accomplishing? He's all powerful and he's personal and he's purposeful, leading to that tove and that goodness and all of our sorrows turn to the joy. How is he actually doing that? Believe it or not, he's doing it through us. And it means this, you have never done and you never will do an insignificant thing for Jesus. It all matters. When you usher and hand out a worship folder, when you help with communion, when you click that little PowerPoint presentation, and, and when you serve as a vacation Bible school guide, or when you're a mentor to our youth, or in the most feeblest of your prayers at 3 a.m. when you wake up with all the pressures of the world and everything racing through your mind, it all counts, it all matters, it is all a part of his plan. He is using it all until the day of his glorious return. To God alone be all the glory. Amen. Let's.